Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Heijang. And I'm Stacy. Um, and we'll be doing the scripture reading today. Today's scripture is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end... Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Thank you very much, ladies. Thank you, Stacy. Hey, Jung, I thought you had an opportunity to do it in Spanish. Just saying. Spent some time abroad, got the language down pat, right? Fluent, ready to go? Close enough. It's better for us in English, I think, at this point. Well, this is uh, an incredible, um, you know, morning just to, well, there's about 150, 175 people in here that need a nap this morning from after a night to shine, and I am one of them. So I asked them to have a nice subdued coloring behind me. I'm going to start talking in low tones like we're listening to NPR. And uh, for the next, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, if you need a nap, you have it. It's okay. (laughs) A lot of energy expended this weekend at this church. And I know Pastor Tom had um, kind of recapped that and we have more to come, but really just so impressed and proud. And I, I don't know about you guys that were here and participated. I keep replaying scene after scene after scene in my mind. And uh, not just from our guests that came in the celebration that happened, but just seeing all the people in their places and doing what they were doing and the impact they were making. And, and uh, so I don't know. I just keep thinking about all those different aspects of an incredible night and how much work and, and energy and focus and stress goes into planning something that takes place in just a few hours. It's part of the reason why I don't cook now that I think about it, because you got to spend three hours and then about, what, eight minutes, the meal is gone. It's like, well, all of that just to, was it worth it? Well, this is one of those things where you're like, okay, that was worth it. I can live on this for a long, long time. And so uh, really would encourage you uh, next time around to uh, participate if you didn't get the opportunity to. I would encourage those of you that did and are feeling the way you do this morning, don't worry, that uh, that fatigue wears off. You'll be ready for next year's event as well. Um, but the Bacon family and, uh, I mean, top to bottom, Bacon family, just kind of living here and doing all that they did. And then they had so many people that just spent basically the week here 
um, getting things ready. Every time I came out of my office or around the corner, Jen Phillips had balloons in her hands. She was still filling up balloons everywhere. And there were people running back and forth and setting things up and moving things. And then even after an exhausting night and I mean, Chef Lucky kind of killing it with the dinner. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he'll say, he'll be the first one to tell you, it wasn't just me, it was everybody and stuff, but you know, we know where the flavor came from. And yes, everybody did help and dive in and just really the service and everything. And I, I still don't have the numbers and I won't even venture to guess at what they were in terms of guests and things like that. But I think we had at least 300 people in this building, it all together, volunteers and guests and everything. And and all of you that line the red carpet, and you just know what an incredible and special time that is to be able to do that. So um, so it's just a, an amazing thing to participate in and, and a great unifier and a great way to bring us together in service. There's really no substitute for building a relationship than working side by side with somebody else. Um, fun events and all those kinds of things, those memories stick with you for a while and everything, but doing something, laboring together, the Lord has built something special within us that when we put our hands to the plow together, figuratively speaking, we actually build a bond. We grow closer to one another, which is one of the great reasons why we provide this event and so many other events that are driven largely by the impact of volunteers. Um, because we know the efforts um, coming together will build those relationships, which is what we're about and what we're aiming to to um, to have take place. Um, and and Pastor Tom also mentioned the men's summit that's coming up, where we have an opportunity for our men to gather. It's a, like a midwinter break, if you will, a reset. We get to hear some instruction and things, but this year is changing a little bit, where it's not heavy conference from start to finish. There's a lot of that relationship aspect of it, which is what men live for. <laughs> but Jeff knows this. Jeff and his leadership team, they know this, that guys are pretty much like, that's my Saturday. Give me my garage, leave me alone, and I'm good. It's a little bit difficult sometimes to get men to build the kind of relationships that the Lord has intended us to build. And that's why we're so thankful for the atmosphere that we have at Faith. It's taken a lot of years, Jeff, right, to feel like we're kind of looking around and seeing all of this connection and all of these relationships built um, between the men of God and all that you bring to the culture and the atmosphere of our church. We used to hear from a lot of the ladies going, you know, you put so much time and emphasis on the men. Where's the stuff for the ladies? We're like, it's coming and the leadership's being built. But you have to understand, you know, getting guys to engage in things in the church is like trying to start your car when it's 30 below zero in Maine. You know, it's hard to get that started. It's hard to, you have to put a lot of extra emphasis. And I think that whole leadership team's done an incredible job. So I'm encouraging you men to come out and join us at the summit that's coming up later this month and take some time uh, out of an otherwise, I'm sure, busy schedule to um, invest in the thing that the Lord is preparing for you. Make sure you take advantage of that. Don't pass on those opportunities. The reason why we do all of these things, and there'll be more events to come. We've been promoting recently the ways that we can engage in the city, and it could feel a lot like we're just throwing things out there for us to be busy. Keep the church busy. Keep us running so that we feel at the end of the day like we've participated in something or we've accomplished something. And I would say to you that that's almost the exact opposite reason as to why we do what we do or we promote what we promote. We we're not here to um, to entertain people. We're not here to make you feel like you're a part of a club because you can get that kind of anywhere. 
and they won't require some of the difficult things in terms of your growth in Christ that that the Lord requires when you're participating in a church. We do these things because there is a battle for the soul that is going on in a world that we can't see. And so even when we look on the surface at something like Night to Shine, we're like, that's a really nice thing to provide. That's a really beautiful opportunity to show a segment of our population that we notice them, we care about them, and we're providing a night of celebration for them. And those things are accomplished, don't get me wrong. But if that was the only motivation for doing it, we wouldn't have had all the people that were here giving all that they gave, and then the impact that's being made as a ripple effect beyond the event. No, the spiritual battle that goes on behind the scenes is the fact that human beings are now debating and, and, and uh, weighing out what is the worth of a person. What can they contribute? What can't they contribute? What is um, cruel to make somebody go through life um, experiencing or something along those lines? What is the value of a human life? And God's people look in the scriptures and they see that he has created us all in his image. Regardless of what the external packaging of that image might seem to society, that, that God's glory lives in each and every one of us because we are made in the imprint of his image. We are the expressed image of his son. And so God is doing these things and in, in waking us up to the spiritual reality of the things that we don't often see because we just see what's on the surface. The reason why we would have men's events, the reason why we would do those kinds of things, why is because Satan is an active enemy targeting the hearts and the minds of men and women and teens and children, of singles and of, and of marrieds. He's, he's actively engaging in a strategy that we sometimes take for granted that that's not really happening or there's other people doing that battle somewhere else, but that battle is raging right in our own lives, in our own hearts, and in our own minds. I don't know if you've ever, well, I'm sure you have, you've seen those epic clashes or collisions in war movies or in movies where they're setting up this great battle scene and, and you see, especially in the kind of like medieval sort of looking things when you have two forces just charging at each other and, and the good uh, director is going to give you glimpses of both as they're getting closer and those scene changes are going to pick up even faster and faster until ultimately in the music's building till ultimately this horrific clash of force between people and it just comes together in this ugly fashion and and we have no um uh we we can't help but imagine what would i do in those moments would i be running in the front lines out of the adrenaline and the and the drive with everybody else would i be holding back kind of going you know i hope that clash goes okay and i hope i make it through this battle we can't help but imagine what would we be doing as those great forces come together and collide this is exactly what's happening, as, as, as much of an overreach as this might sound, that's exactly what's happening each and every day you and I step out into the life that God has had uh, prepared for us. There's this epic clash of there's a war between our hearts and minds and our wishes and desires where we think it should go and then and then and then God's will sometimes coming at this and then we collide and we clash with God's will and we're like, I know, Lord, you want this for me, but I'm just not willing to give it to you. Or those that wake up each day and say, Lord, I want your will and I want to take the first step into what you're leading me into. And then Satan's forces are coming and then they're meeting those head on and that collision just happens. And not today, you're not. I know you set out to give this day to the Lord, but I'm going to ruin it right from the very beginning. So it'll discourage you, cause you to drop out of the battle. As we've been studying the book of Ephesians 
Paul's been opening our eyes to a world that we don't see with our natural eyes. He's told us in, if we're going to see this battlefield, if we know that we're engaging in it, then we have to be properly equipped. We have to put on the belt of truth, which we said was cinching up and tightening the otherwise loose garments that would get in the way and take, take away our mobility. So put on that belt of truth because God's truth tightens things up in our lives and makes us more mobile because we're living with things that are dependable and reliable instead of the lies and the errors of the world. To put on the breastplate of righteousness so that we are covered, we are shielded, we are protected by a perfection that Jesus has lived out on his own and is made available to us and is earned by his sacrifice and his resurrection. To strap on the boots of readiness or the ones that are given to us in the gospel of peace so that we are, we are, um, we are at peace with God. We're no longer his enemies. We're no longer hostile to the things of God because he has reconciled us to himself. But also we have the peace of God. So we walk each and every day in these boots laced tight, these readiness boots, actively living at peace with those around us, even with those who do not want to live peacefully with you. And then to put on the, to take on the shield of faith and to, to wear it on the external as a, as, as a, as a tool that is capable of extinguishing the fiery arrows of the enemy. Pastor Tom had shared with us last week that it would, they would be saturated in this, um, fire retardant or in, in a, in a water, uh, kind of thing that would put the flame of the arrow out as it made contact with the shield. As Satan is attacking and he's lobbing, um, these arrows and these volleys one after the other, the shield is constantly prepared for the attack because it's one been provided to us in Christ. We are constantly engaged with a battle in the spiritual realm. It is my contention, not on any of you individually, but just Christendom or the church of Jesus Christ at large. We have been lulled to sleep, and I am guilty of those times of being lulled myself. I don't necessarily see that every moment of every day is a part of a greater battle that's taking place. And I believe that the more that we see that, like like um, Elisha's apprentice, remember we talked about a few weeks ago, the, the great prophet, he said, don't worry, we're being protected by forces you can't see. And the young apprentice said, I don't believe you. So Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, open his eyes. His eyes were open and he saw flaming swords and shields all around him being carried by the angels of God. That as we ask the Lord, Lord, give me a vision that this battlefield exists and that the mundane of my life really is impacted by this battle, but also what I do in the regular routine or the mundane of my life impacts the battle. So we come to this list of equipment that we've been given, all of these things that we've inherited in Jesus Christ. And then he tells us in verse 17 to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So in breaking out this very simple verse into two parts, the first thing I would encourage you to do this morning is to find your confidence in a salvation that has been provided for you. That's a very basic statement, but there's some subtle truths in there, some theological realities that we have to really take to heart. If one, we're going to see that there's a battlefield going on and that we have a place in it. And two, if we're going to be victorious as we live in it. 
So let me break some of this down. Let's look first off at the salvation that we've received in Christ. Because Paul is saying that you have to take this. The inference here, or the plain speak of this, is that there's a a helmet that's being provided. So you have to reach out and say, okay, I'm going to put this on. That you're going to receive something that's given by another. Now, again, I'm going to constantly point out, as often as the Lord gives me an opportunity, I'm going to constantly point out the, the language and the mindset of our culture that we are constantly at war with. Not to pick on them per se, because I don't expect those without the Lord to speak in the Lord's terms or to have the same goals that the Lord has, but how much it's influenced us. And so we have so many voices coming into our head saying, you need to rise up. You need to be strong. You need to stand firm in your own toughness and to muster up the strength of your own flesh that you can stand and wage war in this battle. But the Lord comes in with something much more encouraging, something much more refreshing and say, no, I've already got the equipment for you. You've already proven, I've already proven that you don't have the strength within you to, be, to defeat the enemy. That's why I did it for you. And I'm providing you the same armor that I wear. So Jesus is giving us this same salvation, this helmet he's putting on us by his victory of the cross and him walking out of the grave. This is what's been given to us because Jesus is a warrior against the sin that you and I were born with, born into. The thing that that nailed us to the cross instantly the moment we went, wah, wah, wah. Jesus says, I've paid for that already. This is going to plague you for the rest of your days and you're going to be struggling to get over some of these propensities and and all these things and and, and the things that wage war in your heart. But I have paid the ultimate price for that. These things no longer have to master you or defeat you. In the Old Testament before that, before we knew that Jesus would, would be who he is, but the pointing to him and speaking of the Lord The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 59, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. In Isaiah, we have salvation is pictured in what Jesus, what God does. And in Ephesians, Paul is saying that salvation is the thing that he gives us. He's earned it. And now he gives it to us. One writer had this amazing image. He said, he said, it's like if you can picture the nail scarred hands of Jesus, you know, we see sometimes in the movies or we hear the great stories of a ceremonial preparation for the battle or a general comes and says, I need you for war. Or they commission you. And it's this moment, you know, you can kind of feel the music. Well, this writer says it'd be like if you saw the nail scarred hands of Jesus coming, saying, do you want to put this helmet on and go to battle with me? And you seeing what it cost him and what he earned and how his victory was made true because he walked out of that grave. And you would take that helmet and say, I get to fight alongside of him. So his nail scarred hands place this helmet on our heads. That is the salvation that we've received. When Paul says, take, imagine all of that happening, that he's offering us that helmet and you receive it. What is the salvation that we're talking about? You know, churches, especially in our American culture, we talked about, we talk about being saved all the time or it's part of our cultural vernacular. Oh, they're one of those born agains. What is this even talking about? And so theologically, it's important for us to really think about what is the salvation that I've received? What is the salvation that's been provided for me? Because this salvation 
isn't just a moment of emotional reaction when you're down at your lowest. This salvation is active in your past. It's working in your present and it is, and it is secure for your future. And I'm going to make several of these statements here that I would love to see you adopt for yourself in all confidence. And, and a lot of people would say you can't know anything for sure. But if you study the scriptures, you can know for sure that you belong to Jesus Christ. The reason why we don't often think we can know for sure is because we know who we are. But the more you get to know who Jesus is, the more you can step in with a confidence that makes some of these statements with an exclamation point. And these are the statements I would love to hear coming out of the, the mouths of the children of God. In Jesus, I am saved. Because by God's grace, all that he's done, I've been forgiven of my sins. Yes, even the things I can't stop thinking about, even the things I can't, I can't forgive, quote unquote, myself over, even the past that I know I haven't been able to forget about. Yes, he's forgiven me of those sins. And, and this hits us in, in different places. I was having a conversation at night to shine, uh, while the music's pumping in the speakers and right in my ears. And there was one kid there that was wrestling. Two of his friends came and introduced him to me and said, he doesn't think God can forgive him. And I was able to have just a long conversation as long as you can in that atmosphere, uh, and, and a repetitive conversation about just trying to get the, the, the truth across. And I'm telling you, as I'm explaining it to him, I'm believing it more and more. What I wanted him to receive, I had often doubt for myself. All my compassion was all wrapped around this kid, and I just wanted him to believe that Jesus has it all for you. He has all this forgiveness, the memories of things he was wanting to confess to me. I know he wanted to and stuff, and he was just like, I think Jesus hates me. And so trying to explain to him that he doesn't and wanting to just kind of pour out to him all the love that I know that the Lord's shown me. But what do I do? I make a mistake or I walk in my sin and I go, this Lord's done with me. Doesn't love me. We talk ourselves out of a belief that Jesus has saved me, that it's by his grace, not my performance. I've been forgiven. I've been reconciled back to him. I've been, I've had a relationship given to me that I didn't earn on my own by his invitation. He's adopted me as a son and welcomed me into his home. And he sent his spirit to indwell me, to move in my life. That is all happened the moment that I surrendered my heart and my will to the Lord and received him as savior and Lord and King. Those are the things that have been given to me. We remember this from Ephesians 2 where Paul said, It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. You don't even have anything that you can brag about with this. How often we forget that and think it's a matter of our performance, our sincerity, our connection to him. But in the present, another statement that I would love to hear you make and that I need to make more and more is that in Jesus, I am being saved. The past and the security of it has been taken care of, but he's not done his work yet. He is continually saving me. It's an active and present force within my life. The spirit is working within me constantly present. 
transforming me into the image of Christ. Sometimes even despite my best efforts to reject him or move away from him or just want to put him on a shelf for a while so I can go out and live the life I want to live. He's saying, I'm not done with you. I have more to do with you. I have greater plans for you. I have greater love and grace and forgiveness for you than you're allowing to hear and to see in me. He's constantly transforming me into the image of Christ. He's continually cleansing me from sin. I continue to come to him and say, Lord, I I know what I am. I know who I want to be. I know who I have been. Would you forgive me? Would you make me new? And he says, day after day after day, I'm here for all of it. He is continually fitting me for heaven. This is why Paul continues in verse 10 of Ephesians 2. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should continue to walk in these good works. That is our present. That is our here and now. But also we can say emphatically in Jesus, I will be saved. Someday, whenever that comes, and for some of our sisters in Christ recently it has come, but there will be a day where we will be freed from the sin that seems to have a grip on us for the rest of our lives and will have a, and, and would otherwise have a grip on us for all of eternity. He comes instead and, fr- instead and frees us from eternal sin and frees us from death even though we walk through its gates for a moment. He resurrects us on the other side. And then the promises of God say, one day all of this stress and pressure and turmoil and everything that we're going through in life, it will be behind us because I am making a new heaven and a new earth and we will walk in them for all of eternity. So in Jesus, we can say, I will be saved. He's, he's saved me. He is continuing to save me and he will even save me securely in the future. So when the nail scar hands of Jesus say, would you come and wear this helmet? Now we know what he's talking about. The helmet of salvation is crucial because it defends us against uh, Satan's spears. And what does he throw at us? He throws the spears of doubt, the arrows of discouragement. Remember, we looked back briefly at the Garden of Eden right from the beginning of all this because it was such a clear picture of of the devil's playbook. He did it right from the beginning and he's been doing it ever since. He casts doubt about God. He wants us to question God's character, question God's love for us, his reality. We always say if God was real, then none of these things would be happening right now. So Satan throws these spears of doubt and wants us, even if we claim to love him and walk in him, we start to doubt maybe he's not up to all the good for me and in me that he's claimed. Maybe he's not even present, right? If you've ever had those questions, don't sit there and think, oh, I must not belong to God because I kind of think I do this for a day job and I question these things all the time. It reminds me how crucial faith is and how it's not a strength or a muscle I can always depend on myself for. If God wasn't so big, secure, and loving of me, I would fail me and him all the time. And he throws those arrows of discouragement. He lies to you about God, so you start doubting God, but then he reminds you who you are, tries to knock you out of the battle that way. 
if if I was better at this or if I was more faithful and stuff, then maybe he'd love me. It's not that I doubt God's love. I just don't think I've earned it. I don't think I'm good enough for it. And we make it all about us. God has said, again, this is a helmet that I have earned and I am placing on you. The salvation comes from me, not from you. So what is the the run of salvation in our life? How is salvation exercised? In other words, what is a helmet for? Simply put, a helmet is to protect us. It's protecting our mind. Pastor Tom last week um, used an example of some guy named Trent. um, And I don't know who he was referring to. But um, I heard that... uh, And who knew that Pastor Tom had all the jokes all of a sudden? You know what it is? He's recently got his um, his uh, Bible college degree because he just graduated from his his um, his program, you know, his undergrad program and stuff in college and stuff. So you can applaud that if you want, I guess. <clears throat> he did that all the while while I was begging him and directing him to do all the other work and stuff of the church and everything, and it's just not fair. And that must have been one of those courses, is a humor course that you got along the way. Anyway, Trent, as we'll call him, not only did he have a wrist injury recently because he wasn't properly shooed in the ice, but uh, he also got a concussion last year uh, while he was trying to take up cycling <clears throat> and was wearing a helmet and everything. I don't know how well this illustration works with the point I'm trying to make, but let's keep up picking on Trent while, we, while we've got some momentum. <clears throat> Trent, so the tor- story is told to me, was on a road cycle with his friend, Randy, who happens to be in here, but don't ask him who Trent is. And, um, and, and Trent and Randy were going probably all of three or four miles an hour on a little walk trail. And there was this little 90 degree turn on the, on the path and those bikes, you know, they've got like paper thin tires. They're not off road bikes. And Trent dug his front wheel in one of those little patches of sand going a couple miles an hour, flew over the handlebars and knocked himself out. Trent's never been knocked out before. Didn't know what it felt like until then to wake up and start. And I am, I mean, uh, Trent is so grateful that he had a helmet on because it could have been so much worse. But the helmet of salvation that we're talking about. Oh, here's the connection we can make for it. So much more reliable than even the one that Trent was wearing that day, which was still a good helmet. But it protects the mind. The mind is where our entire view of life comes from. It's where all the battles are waged for us is right in here, is it not? If you're struggling with anger or you're struggling with lust, you can thank your brain for those things because they're coming from thoughts of selfishness or greed or entitlement. Those, those temptations and those things are not just external that just come in and be like, oh, I wasn't even thinking about being tempted by that. These things always start right here between the temples. And they express themselves in these things that get us in trouble. And so salvation, this helmet of salvation has come to protect the mind. Jonathan Edwards says the ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. So a helmet 
is for protection, but a helmet is also for identification. In the soldier's period that we're talking about, it was very clear what a Roman soldier looked like. And so people could see that helmet coming from quite some distance and know that's a Roman guard that's making their way. It was a very distinct looking kind of helmet. Today, we're going to see a lot of helmets out on the gridiron, right? We're going to see a football game, theoretically, that you're going to be able to tell who um, is, is doing what based on the color and design and the decoration of their helmets. It's interesting to me that in football, we have very little knowledge of who the individual players are because their faces aren't as famous to us. Some of the quarterbacks rise to that level of household face or something like that. Of course, Tom Brady has one. Jerk. Anyway... At least he's retired. But, uh, but we don't know what all these, these, these great athletes and stars look like from football because they have a helmet that conceals it and makes them look like they're a part of this really big team, right? We don't think about their faces. We see the little logo on the side of the helmet moving around. This is what a helmet is meant to provide. Protection, yes, but identification, And as a Christian puts the helmet of salvation on, now people say, oh, you're one of those. I can see that your mind is being not only protected, but it is being identified by the salvation which has been given to you, that you carry. We are exclusively in Christ. Have you noticed that this whole armor list that we've been going through is all that Jesus has, all that he's earned and all that he is providing. He is the armor. This is why we work so hard to introduce people to a personal savior for you to meet the person of Jesus Christ, not to get trapped in religious duty, not to be thinking about all the things that you can do or give or all the sacrifices that you can make. You need to meet the person of Jesus and then he leads you through the tone and the the um, the timing of all of those things as he's growing you, as he's walking you through them. He is a living person. He walked this earth perfectly. He laid his life down perfectly. He beat death for us perfectly, earning all of this armor and then placing it in our hands as we've been hearing about in Ephesians. In an identity, in the flawless character of Christ, the more you and I obsess about the identity of the flawless character of Christ, will mercifully remove the cravings that we have as human beings to be seen as an individual. I want you to see me for all my personality, all my desires, all my wants, which again is what culture says. We need to know more about you. We need to pay attention to more about what makes you tick, what you care about. Let's roll out the carpet for all the things that you care about, right? All the messaging that we receive. But in Christ... We're given this merciful opportunity to think about the flawless character of Jesus Christ, to adopt the flawless character of Christ, to surrender to it. And as we do that, we stop thinking less and less about what makes us tick. I'm not saying those things aren't important. I have to put that out there. This isn't to create a a uniformity of mind-numb robots. The Lord uses the beauty and the color of all of our our distinct personalities. But our obsession with those things, our needing for that to ascend to the to the throne goes away. Because we think, well, he's the flawless one. He's the one that's won in battle and he's made it available to me. 
So this helmet provides protection, it provides identification, but it also, as a combination of protection and identification, it provides us confidence, which is what we crave in life, don't we? We've seen it in the face of our faithful warriors who have recently been facing death. And that quiet faith and just the opportunity to be able to sit with them and to hear um, the, the natural human shakiness of walking into a territory they've never been before. Please don't ever think that a, a somewhat of a fear of a physical death is somehow some indicator of a weak faith. But I can tell you that your, your fear of a physical death is reduced the greater that your faith in your walk with Jesus is exercised. But I've been seeing uh, the, and hearing the testimony of those who have approached this time, knowing that this time was coming and still knowing, okay, I don't know if I'm going to like the journey to get there, but I cannot wait to meet my Savior face to face. That the ultimate fear of what happens to me after I close my eyes, that's been taken care of, that's been provided for and removed. That's where the confidence comes from because the helmet of protection, the helmet of faith, the helmet of salvation is a protection and an identifier of the heart of the follower of Jesus. Paul, when he was speaking to the Philippian church and was singing their praises about their growth and what he was hoping that they would continue to grow in and things, he sent encouragement to them. And in the beginning of the letter, he says, he goes, and and you are basically is what he's saying. He says, you're not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but also of your salvation and that from God. There's a direct correlation by our confidence in what the Lord does in the reduction of our fears and our knee-knocking in life. All of that was point number one. And I still have time. Let's go into point number two. And this is where I think we need to shift a little bit. So far, we've been talking about defensive armor, things that protect you from the attacks from the outside, but it doesn't end there. And I'm so thankful Paul doesn't just end there, but he actually reminds us that we have a weapon used for attack. So the second point here is to attack the darkness with the word of God. And he says in verse 17 that this is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The sword he's referring to is like a mid-sized kind of double-edged sword. It's used for close combat. It's used to, um, they're, they're, they're used to uh, carrying this as Roman soldiers. They wouldn't necessarily have those big long ones like we'd see in Braveheart or Lord of the Rings or something. It was that medium size, able to move it much faster. The average person could wield it without getting too tired too quickly. But it was meant to engage in closer proximity to your enemy, which remember we talked about a couple weeks is one of the more horrifying aspects of war. As we think about war being fought at distances and now even from drones and things, there's an element of human protection that we feel, especially as Americans, that we don't necessarily always engage in hand-to-hand combat or close proximity combat, which is what if you've experienced any of that, you know the, the horrors and the dangers of that. If you've seen any of it played out on the big screen, then you know it's just it takes on a new phase as you can hear the voice of your enemy. You can you can hear the sounds, you can smell the the the, the sweat and the breath, you can see the blood, all those sorts of things are now became making this battle and the horror of this war even more real. All of this is wrapped up in the, in the, in the type of blade that, that Paul is pointing us towards here. 
It's, of course, a sword of defense. I don't mean to say that this is only an attack weapon. It's a sword of a a defense against the persistent and constant errors that are kind of plaguing our mind, our false views of who God is or what he's doing in the world or what our lives are for, that we have those kinds of mistakes that we make in our life. But also it's a persistent um, weapon against the lies or the attacks that come our way. I just want to point out for us as a Christian culture for a moment that there is a difference between those two things. You can be naively wrong or you could be intentionally deceptive. And so what we've gone through over the last several years is a lack of nuance, a lack of understanding that there's both of those things at play. There are some that try to generate this whole machine of anti-God that want to create an entire system that reduces him, that mocks him, that mocks what we do. Those environments require an attack kind of battle. That is, it is, is head on with the weapons of the spirit, which is what we'll talk about. But then there's also those that are in error, like we are sometimes, and we have been, that aren't intending necessarily to defeat God, but we just don't know any better. Or maybe we, we're trying to satisfy a, a craving or a need in our life, and we just don't realize that God has a better way of going about it or providing it. My encouragement to the church of Jesus Christ is to learn to discern between those two camps and, and guard your response to those things depending on the arena that you're in. I, I have examples I could use for that, and I have before. But for time, let me just leave it with that principle and think about that and pray about those things. Lord, do I only have one volume, one speed when I see something wrong or anti-God? Do I sometimes blast the person in the way because I'm trying to attack an agenda? And I forget that there's an individual who doesn't really care about carrying the banner of the agenda. They just seem to be swept up in the sin or the, or the error. I think that the church needs to learn the nuance of that and to respond appropriately. The Bible even says of itself in 2 Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, which is combating sin, combats the sin in our own life. But it's also there for correction. It says there's a better way. There's a, there's a replacement to the error and for training in righteousness. So the sword is defensive. It protects us from error. It protects us from these things that are waging war on our soul. Even David said in Psalm 119 that I've stored up the word of God in my heart that I might not sin against him. So as we pile up, to use that language, the word of God in our hearts and in our minds, it kind of builds a barrier of defense that protects us from all of the spears and the arrows of the enemy. But this is the part that I think needs to shift is that there is a sword of offense that that the sword is given to us to go on the attack. And I again, I want to be careful that I've I remind you of what I just said about how we attack. But I think so often we think that, oh, I'm I've, I've wakened up to the fact that that I'm in a war. Why? Because I had a bad day. It's usually seen, I can see the spiritual field playing out when I've received the attacks of the spirit world. Then I'm reminded that God is, you know, waging a war in the heavenlies. 
But very rarely do we see that in the ministry that we can do and the things that we can give our time and our talents and our treasures and everything towards that it's actually to, to, to attack more territory of darkness and turn it over to the kingdom of God. That it isn't just about the bad days that we're having or the family strife or even the health crisis and concerns that we have, but the spiritual battle is available to us even when things are quote unquote going okay. And Paul is telling us here that the sword is the word of God, but he's saying that this is a sword of the spirit, which means that this is not an earthly weapon. This is a weapon for the spiritual world. This, this equipment works on a higher plane than the one that we often give credit to. Let me see if I can say it this way, and you have this in your notes, but the word of God informs our strategy. It is there for our information, but it also executes our victory. The word of God is in itself like the soldier out on the battlefield doing the dirty work, doing the hard work, doing the, 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 the scary work. That's what God's word does. In Hebrews 4, we also know that the word of God is living and active. Yes, the words coming off the page of the book that all of us seem to have multiples in our own home. This is the thing that is living inactive, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, which is kind of an impossible division to think about. That's the exaggeration to point that out, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word, the Bible that's been given to us, preserved for us, is living and active. It pierces things. It helps us discern the thoughts and the intentions even of our own heart. I can't explain it all the time. Pastors are a broken record when we talk about you need to be in the word on a daily basis. We come up with programs and ways to invite participation. The reason why we do that, again, is not to generate activity. Not so that we can say how many people are doing the Bible app at the same time or how many people read through the Bible in a year or anything like that. <clears throat> Those things are fun. But that isn't the end result. The end result is there's a spiritual war going on and you will not be victorious without a sword. And your constant review and, and acknowledgement and your, your meditation on and your study of God's word is what is equipping victory. Jesus had sent out in Luke 10, he sent out 72 disciples. And he said, you are to go into the city and you are to heal the sick and you are to speak the truth. You are to speak what we would call the gospel. You are going to speak the good news about why I've come. While salvation is made available now in Jesus. And I think there's a cue here as we've been talking about moving into our own city is there's a, there's a hands-on component of the things that we serve, but we never do it without the gospel. We're not just going to these organizations so that we can say we, again, we've accomplished something nice or we've spruced something up or we fed a meal. We're doing this because it also opens the door for us to be able to speak true words about who Jesus is. And so Jesus tells these 72 disciples, go and do this. And he even gives them some conditions. He says, if people receive you, stay. If they don't receive you, shake the dust off your heels and say, okay, Lord, you're gonna have to deal with this city because I'm out. And he just told them, just go and speak the truth, heal the sick. And if you have reception, you stay and you do your thing. Well, of course, they come back and report all varying stories, but a lot of success. And they come back and say, Jesus, it was mind blowing. We were healing the sick and all these things were happening. Jesus says, I know. Luke ten eighteen, he says, I looked up to the skies and I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
I got to be honest with you. I don't, I'm sure I've seen that verse before, but I don't know if I've ever stopped and just kind of been like, what is he doing? There? That's crazy. I, I don't know if he's being metaphoric. I don't know if he's seeing what we can't see in the spiritual world. But he says, doing what you did, you made Satan fall from heaven. Not because he was there living there, but he's always there to accuse us. He's always there to throw the weapons at, at God's people. And so he's probably always before him saying, hey, can I do this to one of your servants? Can I do this to one of your children? And Jesus was like, as you were out there giving the truth and you were using the word of God and you were using and swinging that sword, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. I don't want to be too sensational here, but... I feel like that's what happened Friday night. I feel like that's what happened every time you use forgiveness with someone that's attacking you. I feel like that's what happens whenever we have an opportunity to teach our kids the gospel when everything else in culture is trying to derail that and to arrest their hearts for their own selfish purposes and things. I feel like that's what's happening every time our teenagers meet and, and, and start to go against culture and hear that there is a God and that he is true and that he does love them and he has a plan and a purpose for their life. I feel like that's happening every time I see students that are in a, in a secular setting where a system is so largely against the things that they believe and yet they press forward anyway. I can imagine Jesus just saying to us, I know what you did today. I know what you did yesterday, and as you were doing it, it was like I saw Satan falling out of the sky because we were defeating him. The word of God is active and powerful. The reason why we say learn it, know it, and absorb it is because of what it can do. In Isaiah 55, listen to this poetry. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When, when Paul uses the word here, he's not just talking about logos, which is the general phrase for any word. He's saying rhema, which is a very specific word. He's saying you are receiving a specific truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about the goodness of who he is. And as you use those specific words, as you speak that specific truth, you are waging war in darkness. And I also like the fact that he's using this more, the smaller, more specific meaning because it brings me back to that sword being useful for close hand-to-hand combat. This is a personal fight, isn't it? I think that's one of the great mistakes that we make when we get all swept up in the politics and the global scale of this and the end times this and all these things that are seem like they're just out of our control. I'm not saying we're not informed, but the more we take in a diet of that, the more that we feel comfortable raging against the things that are way without uh, beyond our reach. When we've got matters going on in our own kitchens and in our own offices and in our own vehicles and things like that, that the the attack is on us or that we aren't carving enough space into the darkness with the light of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're just keeping our war at a distance. God has intended it for us to fight a battle toe to toe, nose to nose, and he's given us the sword that is appropriate for the battle, which is his word. My encouragement to you this morning as we wrap this up is to see the real battlefield. Don't deny it or avoid it. I know it may seem like it's easier just to pretend like it doesn't exist, but it does. So there's no hope in pretending it doesn't. You're only discouraging yourself more. 
And we need to see that we need a salvation that only comes from Jesus. He's the one that's earned it, not us. And this is where our eternal confidence comes in because it's based on his work, not my shoddy performance. And we need the word of God to defeat the enemy. God's weapon is the only one effective in a spiritual fight. Do you know it? Have you absorbed it? Do I'm not talking about how much of it do you know? We have people all the time say, I can't go to a small group because I don't know enough Bible. As though everybody sitting in that living room or in that class knows a lot of Bible. I'm, I'm with people all the time that know more Bible than me. I have a team of elders that I'm just like, okay, I don't want to speak up about Bible things because they know a lot more than I do. That's just the way it is. We all, if we just kind of pulled the curtain open, we would see just knowing some Bible, but knowing some Bible well and being willing to grow and move forward does an incredible job for us. This is what Paul warned us in second Corinthians. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. But the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And true soldiers study the strategy of their leader. They want to survive the battle, but they also want to win. And then lastly, we need to switch from defense to offense. Aren't you tired of just thinking about the Christian life as just what's how you're getting beat up? It wouldn't it be amazing to think, hey, the actions I did today, the things that I did for the Lord made Satan fall from the sky and defeated him in this moment. We need to switch from defense to offense. We've been given protection, but we've also been given a weapon for attack. Let me make this last statement. Believers in Christ do more than just shield off the darkness. They slay it. Would you stand and let's close our time in prayer. Lord, as I think about the lives of the people that are faithful to this church or maybe even visiting, Lord, there's just no way I can know all the individual battles. I thank you, Lord, for the, the, the broad coverage of your word, but I also thank you, Lord, for the personal presence of your spirit, which will visit with each of us and help us to hear a personal message from you as we apply these truths. So, Lord, I pray that you would move in this room, move in the hearts of people who need specific encouragement or need specific correction. Lord, do it in your way at the tone and the, and, the, and, the, and the speed and the strength in which you know they need. Lord, we do all of these things for your glory. We don't do them well, but we thank you, Lord, that you take all of our efforts, all of our sacrifices to you, and you make them something beautiful and incredible. Thank you, Lord, for uniting us together as a people, and I pray, Lord, you'd give us much more time to do so and to invite more and more people to be a part of what you're building. Lord, so that they would be equipped for the battle that's waging all around them and in them. Help us, Lord, to point them to the light of the truth, to the sword of the spirit, which is your word. Help us to use it with great effect, Lord, knowing that those are the words of life that you've given to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.